All right, welcome to the QTR podcast. Today is February 4th, I think. I'm guessing. Who cares? Welcome. Happy to have you here. This podcast, like all my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of my patrons, and then we will get on our way with my buddy Larry Lepard, who I am super stoked to speak to as always. Yes, he is a recurring guest, but I don't care because there's like four people in the world whose opinions I respect, and he's one of them. So that means he gets a lot of time on my podcast. How do you like that shit? This podcast brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion, my exclusive gold and silver providers. JM Bullion has been in business for over a decade now. They are the gold and silver bullion dealer that I trust. They ship discreetly. They have incredible amounts of inventory. They've done over $7 billion in sales. So obviously trusted widely for a reason. QTR podcast listeners have their own representative at JM Bullion, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email. If you have any questions, if you want any help, if you need a personal shopper, you don't feel like doing your gold and silver bullion shopping via the website, which, by the way, is super easy to use. Uh, the prices are wonderful in terms of premiums to spot. The inventory is robust even when there's a crunch in gold and silver. I've noticed they've had fantastic inventory and lots of pretty cool designs and uh, <clears throat> pretty much whatever you're into. If you're a collector just for purposes of stacking bullion or if you are into, you know, some of the novelty uh, gold and silver bullion, JM Bullion has it all. Check it out, jmbullion.com. Link is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friend Sang Lucci over at the Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus Steam Room, the one piece of software that I would trust top of the list when it comes to trading options and monitoring flow in the options market, which is more important now really than it's ever been. In the age of gamma squeezes and meme stocks, really watching the options market and knowing what's going on in the options market can be a huge asset if you're a trader. The Steam Room, on top of just being a wonderful community of traders, offers uh, wonderful insights into the options market. It'll show you where the money is going, and it is a aesthetically beautiful piece of software it's easy to use, and they have a great trading community. So check out Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. Those links are in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. My buddy, George Gammon, has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, and Brent Johnson to help you figure out ways to preserve your wealth in a world of out-of-control central banks. Rebel Capitalist Pro is a wonderful service that gives you live Q&A access to people like George and Brent Johnson and Lynn Alden. It gives you their insights, uh, mock portfolios. It gives you access to their forum where a lot of macro and investing ideas are discussed. It's pretty much an invaluable resource if you look at the world through the same Austrian school lens that many of us do. Uh, it's great perspective and uh, wonderful information from people that really understand things a little bit better than I do also. Just to be frank with you, just to be honest with you, by the way, it is a good time to mention that I am not an investment advisor. This is not investment advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations, none of that stuff. Please consult your personal investment advisor, your personal financial advisor. Whatever you do, do not make decisions based on me or my wonderful blog entitled Fringe Finance. That link also happens to be in the podcast description. How do you like that shit? I dropped the old self-promo into the disclaimer. 
But for real, don't listen to anything I have to say, please. Uh, I am not a professional. I'm not a financial professional. This podcast, in addition, by the way, Rebel Capitalist Pro, Sang Lucci, JM Bullion, these guys will work with you. Tell them the Q-Man sent you if you want to try out any of these services. Get in touch with Sang Lucci. Get in touch with George Gammon. Tell them Quoth sent you. Tell them that you want a free trial. You want this, that, or the other thing. They'll make sure that you get taken care of. Um, but for right now, let's get on with the damn show. I w- and you know what? I want to thank all of my patrons that have been with me for a very long time, too. People that continue to support the podcast on Patreon. It really means a lot to me. It doesn't go unnoticed. I'm very thankful for you guys. And just generally, I'm thankful for my listeners. Um, I don't know why you guys listen to me. That's another. It's a whole other discussion for another day, but I'm stoked that you do. And uh, it's cool. Every once in a while... An advertiser asks for my statistics. You know how many people are listening. And the number is still moving up and to the right. I don't know why. I feel like I repeat the same shit for the last fucking 10 years. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? I guess we have fun. You know, we crack a beer. We laugh. Occasionally, I eat sunflower seeds in the middle of the podcast. The care level that I have for, uh, well, I'm very appreciative. We'll just leave it at that. (laughs) All right, I have with me my buddy Larry Lepard, one of my favorite people that I always listen to when he's on other podcasts, but of course, happy to have him here with me of the EMA GARP Fund, which uh, had a terrible year last year, and uh, here we are, you know, Larry, just uh, just sitting here taking the D again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I really fucked it up pretty good last year, Chris. Um you know, I, I, the way I run this fund is I'm very aggressive about very asymmetric, you know, high upside optionality, assuming we have monetary debasement. And uh, when you don't have monetary debasement or when the climate for monetary debasement sucks, as it did this past year, and everybody actually thought we were coming out of the troubles that we've had, uh, some of my stuff gets really badly hit. And so I'm not proud of last year's results, but... You know, there have been good years, too. I had an up 122% year and an up 100% year, so you got to take the good with the bad. And it feels like uh, the tide is slowly turning here because we know they're trapped and we know more monetary debasement is a certainty. So The shit that's like, frustrating is you read your letter and it makes so much sense. What you're saying I mean, makes so much sense. And, you know, what I wrote about on Friday on my blog was the idea of Markets just don't care about reality. And if you're trying to trade based on reality, you're just going to get your face punched in. And that's that's what's happening. The only question is whether or not there will be a day of reckoning when reality rears its ugly head. And so, of course, yeah, go, yeah ahead. go ahead. No, I mean, as you and I both know, of course, there will be. And it's the timing issue. And this is the age old with markets, you know, Buffett's, it's a weighing machine or a calculating machine or a voting machine. And, you know, we got a bunch of idiots that are our co- co-participants in the market who are, you know, buying the dip. I mean, I, I love the 2008 video, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the animation of just, you know, this market is so easy. You just buy the dip. And since 2009, that's kind of what's worked. And people are very quick to go right back to that. And, you know, I was watching a, a video this morning of Druckenmiller, one of the great macro investors of our time, saying he's never seen a more confusing time period right. in his, you know, 40-plus years. I mean, he's got so many cross-currents moving around. And so as a result of that, in, in the very short run, it's extremely hard to know what's going to happen. But I think, you know, I think in the longer run, things will true out. I mean, 
there are certain kind of mathematical and, and physical laws, you know, which can't really be violated. Well, there I mean, used to be. <laughs> yeah, and there still are, Chris. But, but you know, in the short run, um, you know, that uh, the, the money flows can overwhelm things. I mean, when you create 40%, you know, of the money supply in a two-year time frame, which is what they did, which is unbelievably irresponsible, when you do that, you know, you get a lot of funny things happening. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> You know, and it's in, in, in all directions, right? And so to sit here and say with high confidence that you know what's going to happen tomorrow or next month is just insanity. But to sit here and look at the Buffett indicator and say, okay, you know, stocks as a multiple of GDP or as a multiple of revenues are right now they're as expensive as they were at the peak of 2000. And as we all recall, from the peak of 2000 to the bottom, they went down 50%. I mean, the stock market is not cheap right here. And meanwhile... You know, you've got an economy that's gone from zero interest rates to 5% interest rates, and everything is rolling over. I mean, how does this not impact the stock market? We're only 18% off the top, which was the biggest bubble in the history of mankind. So, you know, we know which way is the correct way to lean. What we don't know is when it's going to matter, right, as, as you've been saying, as, as you know I feel. so. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because there is a – unprecedented amount of liquidity out there like you're saying so when that you know when the dog may stray off the path a little bit assuming look the 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 fed is a headwind now and not a tailwind rates are at five percent the chinese are fucking flying balloons over the top of the country monitoring our icbm sites and we're apparently completely content with that you know russia's in ukraine china's thinking about taiwan the BRICS nations are making their own reserve currency we're $31 trillion in debt. You know, the S&P is at 25 times earnings with rates at 5%, which will eventually cause a massive implosion economically and, you know, debt-wise and otherwise. And you have all that stuff going on. But all of a sudden, this go-round, you have this extra buffer of liquidity that in a case like this week or in a case like today where, you know, the market, the NASDAQ opens down 3% and then it trades back to green, um, that's not a function of, hey, you know, the economy is getting stronger. It's it's a mixed amalgam of, you know, the Fed may pivot now or the Fed may slow down now, but that obviously isn't going to be material for many, many, many months to come, 12, 18, 24 months to come at least, mixed with the fact that there's $5 trillion sitting in money market accounts. There's all this extra cash out there. Now people are just ch- it's it's hot money chasing again, right? It's it's fun. Right. Well, it's and it's and you know and to be fair, that has worked since two thousand nine. People have been rewarded for it, so you can see why they're going right back to it. And uh, <sighs> you know, it, it it just it is what it is. And uh, yeah, I mean, today's employment numbers were totally bogus. I mean, they've got all kinds of adjustments in there. They're really just a guess. And so. Um, you know, we're, we live in a, it's, it's a house of mirrors, right? Um, but I, you know, I know that a couple of things are certainly true. And one is that you can't print wealth, which is what they've been trying to do. And that you can't, um, uh, you can't taper a Ponzi, which is what they've been trying to do. Right. And so the combination of those two is ultimately going to be very, very bad. And they're going to either be forced into a situation where they have to print a lot to keep the thing going and floating in which case inflation-driven assets like the things I invest in are going to go berserk, or they're going to have to you know, maintain some form of austerity. And as you know, you know, the debt ceiling discussion is coming up. And in which case, 
you know, they're going to most certainly push the country into a very severe recession. So, um, and, you know, they're going to try and mark, walk down the middle path of those two extremes. And all I can say is good luck, guys, because it's going to be pretty hard. Yeah, the stunning thing is you have the behavior of market participants acting as though it's the last 15 years. And you have right. all of these macroeconomic indicators starkly different, 180 degrees different than they've been over the last 15 years, right? The last 15 years was nothing but easy money and great data. Now all of a sudden you have, I mean, the most important thing in my opinion is you have a hawkish Fed and you have rates nearing 5%. And there's just, you know, mathematically something is just going to have to break if it hasn't broken and we don't already know about it yet. You know, the question right. is this waiting game. Like, you know, am I an asshole now for continuing to think <laughs> for yeah. continuing to think that, hey, just because the consumer savings are depleted and consumer debt is at record levels and interest rates not only are at historic highs over the last couple of decades, but got there quicker than they ever have, meaning Correct. the car is traveling much faster before it crashes into the mountain. Um you know, am I the asshole for thinking that, like, the market has it wrong here? I'm starting to feel like I did in February 2020, which is watching the news headlines of coronavirus spread to the U.S. and thinking to myself, this is a huge problem, and shorting the S&P and getting my dick punched in for a whole month until, you know, March when the market finally figured it out. But there was a whole month in February where every night I, I couldn't believe it. All The only thing I was doing was I was going to the Trap Tavern, which was a local pub out where I was living near uh, Harleysville, Pennsylvania, Phoenixville. I would go to the Trap Tavern. I would order a beer and a grilled cheese. I would watch the futures open at 6 o'clock, and they would go straight up every day. And I would just sit there every day like, motherfucker. And every day at night between like 6 and 10, the headlines would start to come out of China, right? Because day is breaking in China. So you would see X amount of more cases, you know, X amount of places were locking down like it was becoming a huge deal and uh now futures just going straight up and i feel like that again i feel like uh, it's groundhog day i'm I'm yeah yeah i mean and you know to take to dial it back a little further because i'm a tad older than you are i mean you know this um there was a time i I lived through the 20 the 2000 uh, bubble burst and there was a pretty severe you know significant rally way back then and uh you know, a lot of people thought, well, it's, you know, it's not all over. And, uh, and, and in reality, we were just getting started in 2020 and even 2021, it didn't really get going down until the latter part of the year. And so, you know, the similar thing with the, with the housing thing. I mean, look at how long Michael Burry had to suffer, you know, that he knew what was coming. He was certain of it, absolutely certain of it. And it, and it didn't really happen. Market participants took their time figuring it out. And, um, you know, I, I feel like that's what's happening here. And it's, you know, it's particularly tough. I mean, my, you know, my investors are very chagrined at my results last year. I'm chagrined at my results last year. And yet, you know, I can't look at the setup and not think that we're in the right place. If, if you have a two year, if you have a multi-year view and the pain that's being meted out to us right now, those of us who are either short the market or long inflation driven assets, I, I think we're going to be paid back, you know, many multiple times over because at the big level, and I'm sure you agree with this, the macroeconomic picture has changed. We are not in a deflationary world anymore. You know, there's so many things going on, the, the labor costs, the supply chains, the war, et cetera. I mean, we are entering an inflationary period. 
And people who are investing today have seen nothing but 40 years of deflation. And they don't know what it looks like to be in an inflationary period. I do, because I remember the 70s. I also remember the early 80s when I started in the business and everybody thought we were going to have inflation forever. And, and Gary Schilling and some other very wise guys said, no, it's changing. We're going to have deflation. And he made a killing by buying, you know, 10-year or 30-year strips, you know, on long bonds when they were paying 14%. And so, you know, the, the, we were at one of those big historical turning points. And in the first couple of years of those, there's a lot of choppiness because one side thinks, no, no, it hasn't really changed. We're going back to 2% inflation. You know, we're in a deflationary world. You know, technology is going to change everything. It, it, it always has, you know, um, inflation's dead. Um, and I would submit that, you know, I, I strongly disagree with that. I think there are a number of reasons why that's not true. And that people who invest the way they did in the last 40 years in this climate are going to get their asses handed to them. Now, right now, that's not happening. But, um, I, you know, it's about to, in my opinion. And by about to, I mean kind of within a six-month window. I think it will start pretty pretty severely going in our direction. So, you know, it's annoying sitting here waiting and getting punched in the face, as you said, like, you know, when you were sitting sitting in the bar. I mean, I have the same kind of feeling, and yet there's a certain calm in knowing that, you know, I think we got this right. I, I really do. I mean, I, I don't see how they can get out of the box they're in without, without you know, a major, major monetary accommodation. And the market's actually saying that, too. I mean, the market's got the Fed dropping – rates. I mean, last time I looked at the futures, I mean, it was like, CME is saying like 80% chance we have lower rates by you know, the fall of this year. And, you know, you, you get that. And it's interesting, historically, Michael Oliver pointed this out. Historically, once they start dropping rates, that's actually everyone thinks that's going to fuel the market higher. No, that's a recognition that things are in trouble. And the market will really start to go down at that point, the stock market. I mean, so, so it's coming, Chris. I mean, I, that's my view is it's coming. But, um, you know, it, it takes time. These things, sadly, they don't happen the way you think they should happen instantly. Yeah, Lehman uh, went under like a year after uh, the Fed pivoted, right? That's what right. Chano's and, posted on Twitter. And the Bear Stearns funds blew up. And, I mean, I mean, I remember very clearly the Bear Stearns CDS funds <laughs> blowing up in July of '07. You know, I was sitting at a pool in a summer house, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is a big fucking deal." This, this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, this housing bubble is gonna burst right here, right now. And I went, and I, I went out and I put on a bunch of shorts and I got my ass handed to me. But, you know, like Burry, I hung around and eventually it worked. You know, they changed the rules and screwed me. But I mean, that's a different matter. But the point is that, you know, if you have a thesis um, that you feel pretty confident in, you've got to be willing to ride the ups and downs a little bit. Now, if you're a day trader, you know, obviously, getting, you know, and if you're using a lot of leverage, you know, this is a treacherous environment. I mean, the one piece of advice I give everyone who I talk to about investing is just, in this climate, you cannot be leveraged. You just can't be because of the moves. They're just so violent. You know, you got to know what you own. You got to know why you own it. And um, you know, they, and and it's not just you know the standard stuff either. I mean, my partner and I we were talking this morning. I mean, have, have you looked at like the the chart of natural gas recently? I mean, that gas. I guess we're having a very warm year, and that gas was ten bucks not that long ago. It's down into the two three area now. You look at some of these companies like Comstock Resources, Southwest Energy. I mean, these things are trading at like three times cash flow. Do you know what I mean? I mean, how does how does that not become a much more valuable business over the longer term? You know, because we know that you know the. I mean, the the thing that I think people are going to have to get to wrap their heads around is that commodities are very violent and cyclical, with big moves. I mean, look at look at oil, or I mean, look at the gold. I was just looking at it this morning. I mean, gold is down a hundred dollars in two days. Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, hello, welcome to, vol you know, welcome to volatility land, right? 
But but in in general, gold is going higher, and when it takes out the 2050 area, which I believe it will sometime this year, you know, it's going to quickly. Then it'll be an all-time high, and it's going to, in my opinion, quickly squirt up to 3,000 or so. Silver will be in the 30s, which will make all the silver mining companies enormously profitable, and they're profitable at 22, very profitable. At 30, they're going to be enormously profitable, and um, you know, I think I think oil is going to go higher. I mean, the, the oil price is as low as it is because we released the strategic petroleum reserve. They can't; they're not doing that anymore. China's reopening, right? I mean, we're going to have a hundred dollar, hundred fifty dollar oil in the next year, in my opinion. So, look, we 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 you know, Chris. I mean, I think in these kinds of environments, as Drucken Miller says, the toughest macro climate he's ever seen. I think the best we can hope for is to be on the right side, the general right side of the trade, and wait. You know, have companies that won't go out of business and wait, and because ultimately the values will be reflected. I mean, you know, your COVID trade, you know, hurts you, but I mean, you only had to wait a couple of months. I mean, in in this case, we might have to wait six months or a year, but I'm very highly confident we are on the right side of this trade. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, I want to ask you about Bitcoin because I think this <laughs> yeah. is the first time I've talked to you since I listened yeah. to your podcast with palisades gold radio which i don't know if it was the time or the place or what it was but listening to you describe bitcoin on that podcast it started to make a little bit of sense to me in a way that it hadn't before and i'm not completely sold on it but i guess it was the first time that i accepted the idea of you know bitcoin the protocol and bitcoin the network actually being the asset itself versus the actual bitcoin and you know some of that made some sense to me um you know the 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 invention of digital scarcity i i i still don't know i, I want to ask you about charlie munger's comments a couple of days ago yeah he, you know he basically wrote an op-ed in the wall street journal saying the government yeah, should ban it. bitcoin yeah. and then praised president xi jinping you know for his uh for his vision but what's yeah. what's What's to prevent somebody from just creating something very, very, very similar to Bitcoin? Now that we know how to do digital scarcity, why does Bitcoin have the staying power when somebody may that's just a, be able to innovate great, something else? Yeah, that's a really great question, Chris. And that, that was always one of my biggest concerns when I was looking at it. And I, I think nothing, okay? And, and, and another one could come along. But I think, you know, I, the way I look at it is I kind of look at it the way I look at Google. I mean, you know, a network has, um, it grows, its value and, and usage, you know, its value to people grows exponentially almost as, as people use it. So you wouldn't want to use another search engine because everybody uses Google. So if you're going to search, you use Google because everyone uses it. And if you're putting up something for sale and you want to get hit on the search, you pay Google to get hit on the search. And it's, and it becomes kind of circular and it just becomes, you know, the first mover and the leader by so much it becomes impossible for somebody to catch up. Um, you know, I suppose there could be some technical innovation in some new form of Bitcoin that, that caused Bitcoin to, to lose that prominent position and the other thing to come up from behind it. But you could see it happening. I mean, you could watch the, you know, what I call the dogs eating the food, right? You'd see the people migrating the new one and the old one going away. And, and because Bitcoin is so far out there, hundreds of millions of users, 30,000 nodes, 750,000 blocks, you know, that have been processed, etc. I think it's very unlikely that somebody can come from behind and, and overtake it. I just, I think it's extremely unlikely. I mean, I've said in the past, the only two things that concern me about Bitcoin are this, you know, catastrophic failure of, of the technology and the network, which 
I think has gotten down to an extremely low level based on 14 years and 750,000 blocks. And the second thing that would concern me would be is if there was less adoption or less usage. And yet we can see the statistics on that. We can see the number of addresses. We can see the transactions. We can see the Lightning Network, et cetera. And so, you know, as long as there's continued adoption and it is the leader, I think it becomes it becomes the, you know, the, the best form. It remains, I should say, the best form of digital scarcity. Um, to Munger's comments, I mean, you know, Munger... I mean, obviously, he's a fiat contillionaire, and, and, you know, he's a perfect example. He says, show me the incentives, I'll show you what, you know, what happens. Well, his incentive is to support fiat, and that's why he hates Bitcoin so much, because it would take away, you know, the power that he's got as a result of fiat. He makes a point that's interesting. He says that the cap isn't really $21 million. And if you think about it technically, he's somewhat correct in the same way that, that you know, digital gold, or, I mean, um, um, you know, fake gold, paper gold has suppressed the price of gold. I mean, there, there could be derivatives and other things, derivatives of Bitcoin that could be used. We, you know, there could be, quote, unquote, paper Bitcoin. There is paper Bitcoin because you've got a futures market in Bitcoin. And that's, you know, you've got people trading, you know, buys and sells on something that they don't own. And, um, and if, if the futures market ever got big enough, you know, it could be the tail wagging the dog. And uh, to my way of seeing it, those of us who are in the sound money world who really want sound money, one of the important things we've got to do when we, you know, when this government fails and we get a new government system going, one of the important things we've got to do is we've got to outlaw derivatives, because the whole once you, when you when you enter derivatives into any financial equation, what you basically say is the guy with the biggest balance sheet is going to win, because he can outbet everybody else, and he can he or she can manipulate the price, and so you know derivatives are just if, if you want to have honest, true price discovery based on supply and demand. You can't have derivatives markets, except insofar as you could maybe limit it to like, you know, a guy who's growing corn, selling it to guys who are using corn to produce the product. I mean, the whole but the whole notion that you have 100 times the claims on gold for every ounce of gold that there is in the world, I mean, that makes no sense. That's just a that's a that's a system for manipulating the gold price. I mean, without that system in place, gold would be trading at eighty thousand dollars an ounce, and and the system on Bitcoin is not nearly as built up, but there is the risk of it getting built up over time. So, um, you know, I mean, human beings are pretty creative, right? And, and people are smart enough to realize that if they can manipulate something, they can get silly rich. So a, and, oh. a, a bet on Bitcoin in your, is what you're saying is essentially a bet that it's already become too big to fail. That, that adoption, I think that's right. That I think that's right. The adoption has moved so quickly that Bitcoin is so far ahead that it just can't be dethroned. And, and I mean that – that's that's what it has to be, right? Because if somebody yes. can mock the, if somebody can mock the network, uh, the the protocol, right? If somebody can mock the protocol, or somebody could improve on the protocol, or somebody could create digital scarcity with another asset, you know, there is really nothing unique about Bitcoin. No, I mean, it's, other it's than open... the fact that it was first. Yes, it's open source software. You can copy it. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what. Um, I mean, you've had. Um, you know, they, they're called forks. And in the earlier days, you had a bunch of forks where people said, well, we're going to do Bitcoin gold or Bitcoin this or Bitcoin that. And they did. And, you know, and, and, and it was Bitcoin cash. And there was a, a fraudulent guy who claimed it was the real Bitcoin. I'm not going to say his name. He's such a bad guy and he sues everybody who, who criticizes him. But, but uh, you know, and, and nobody followed. I mean, somebody planted a flag and said, no, I'm taking the code. We're going in this direction. This is the real Bitcoin. And, um, you know, nobody followed. And so, you know, you've got 100 million plus users of Bitcoin 
that are, you know, that are basically locked, dialed in on Bitcoin and supporting it. And they all recognize that, you know, if they split in any way, shape or form, it diminishes the value. So they're going to stay with it. So, yeah, you describe it correctly in my view. So with that being said, um, I don't know, you know, that, that just it it just it it still doesn't push me over the line in terms of. Well, in, in terms of, of any think of it, I, I just don't understand how to get to your level of certainty about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, well, given those yeah, circumstances. I, well, fair enough. I mean, I, I guess I guess you have to. I mean, it's so. Well, first of all, you got to line. I mean, the most to me, the, the best comparable to Bitcoin is gold. OK, so gold is analog sound money. Right. And, and, it, and it's actually been captured because they printed a bunch of paper gold and they've, they've manipulated the price of gold. But and, and to me, Bitcoin is really just digital gold. OK, it's a it doesn't share any properties of gold other than scarcity. Well, that's correct. That's correct. But this but that's it. it, it it's it's the scarcity one that matters. It's the stock to flow and they're about equal right now. And, you know, yeah, I mean, gold is physical. And Bitcoin's a ledger, but money really is and always has been a ledger. I mean, the money in your bank account, you don't go and touch it and feel it and take it out in dollar bills. You just see it there. It's a number on a page. And before people were buying gold, you know, they were marking caves, you know, stick marks for how many people, you know, I killed three bison, you killed one, you owe me two. You know, there's was, there was a way, I mean, money is really keeping score of who owes who what. Do you know what I mean? And that's a ledger. And, and so if you consider money to be a ledger, Bitcoin is a ledger that everybody is it's, it's unique and it's a ledger that everybody can see because it's out in the public. So, you know, I mean, even today, we don't really know how much gold all the central banks have. They claim to have something, but they could be lying. Right. The second thing is um, it's incredibly easy to move around. I mean, try and move a billion dollars of gold. You know, you got to rent a 737. Right. right? And, I mean, you know, try you could move a billion dollars of Bitcoin in 10 minutes you know, with high level confidence from address A to address B. And so in that respect, you know, and, and the cost, and by the way, so you move the billion dollars of gold, you got to put it somewhere, which means you got to have men with guns to guard it, you know, and you've got to, you've got a cost of X basis points per year to have it sitting there. You know, you can have Bitcoin sitting in an address in the network, you know, replicated on 30,000 servers. It costs you nothing to have it sit there. Now, if you decide to move it, it costs you something. Right. You know, and that fee is it varies based on how busy the network is, but it's generally speaking in the dollar two dollar range. And if you know, I mean, you, you can't do a wire transfer in the United States for less than ten or thirty bucks, something like that. So, if you can move a billion dollars for two, that that works. And over time, you know, because the block size is limited, the cost per transaction will go up. But if you're moving, you know, millions and millions of dollars, you're not going to care if it costs you a couple hundred or a thousand dollars to do a transaction on. And again, that's that's a point I can understand. I can understand you can't take a million dollars worth of gold over the border, but you can zap yourself some Bitcoin in three seconds for three cents. I get that. But again, that you can do that a million other ways if, you know, the the Bitcoin. (laughs) Well, no, but the the point is you can do it. You would be able to do it if um, cryptocurrencies with similar properties came about you know as bitcoin and so again the argument just eventually it seems like all roads lead back to the argument that it it has to be the best because it's first and i just i don't know i think about my yeah i mean i think think about napster when i think about shit like that you know like well (laughs) i I, I get it i mean you know people say myspace versus facebook i mean i i I totally get it 
and 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 the the I think the issue though is you got to consider how much infrastructure has built up been built up around it and how secure you know and all the all the hashing power that's kind of keeping and proving that that ledger is secure and and to replicate that I mean look people don't even trust what we've got right now how is somebody going to come along with a better different one and say hey this is the new bitcoin and get everybody to migrate over to there I, I mean I, I just don't see it so I, I guess I have a very high level of confidence because you know of, of, of looking at you know kind of the networking the, the rule of networks which is to say that you know the biggest and the best tends to predominate you know to, to right. dominate and and so and is very rarely supplanted now, I'm not saying it can't be but I to me I'm, I'm highly confident that it won't be because of all the work that's been I mean you've had 14 years of improving this thing and you know you've got core developers who are you know doing work and they you know they put in changes and everyone has to vote on them and it's you know the thing the other thing I like about it a lot Chris it's not a company with a management team I mean there's no you know right. there's no, there's nobody there's no one individual quote unquote there's no shareholders like we found out with tether there's yeah shareholders. yeah and it's not it's not an unregistered security like FTX and there's no promoter sitting on top of it and you know I don't think I, by the way I don't think Satoshi Nakamoto is one person I think Satoshi Nakamoto is a, I think a committee of people built it I'm pretty sure I know who's on the committee because we've all kind of done the forensic analysis of the early days and I think what they did is they realized that any of them trying to take credit would diminish the whole thing. And they just, they, they said, let's make it anonymous. Let's launch it and let it run on its own. And, and that's what they've done. And it runs and it just continually runs every 10 minutes. Another block comes out and you know, there are 8 billion people on the planet and more and more of them are using it. I mean, I don't know how many use cases you've explored, but the one I really love is the, you know, is the one that the, the domestics working in the United States who have the relatives in some foreign country who, you know, been getting ripped off by the bodega owner in Western Union. They lose 20%, 30% of their money just trying to send money home to their relatives. And with a lightning wallet, they can send it for less than a penny. So, you know, and, and that and that grows. I mean, Nigeria, um, you know, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin in Nigeria is selling at twice the market rate here. Um, and the reason is they're living in a currency regime that's totally effed up and they can't save in their own currency. I mean, so, you know, there, there's... There are use cases for it that are continually growing and spreading. And again, we've got a lot of people on this planet and every year more of them decide there's some use in this whole thing. You know, I think the price really only has one way to go and that's up. Now, having said all of that, you know, the volatility is insane, right? It's very yeah. hard and you got it. You got a dollar cost average. What, it. You what got, makes, you know, a, you know, how do you, how do you, put a price on Bitcoin themselves if the, That's a great if question. the case is for yeah. the network. Yeah, well, the, 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 the case is for the network, but you can put a price on the coins themselves. I mean, they, you know, minting a coin, I mean, because they still are producing coins, eventually they'll get down to almost zero value but of, of new coins issued. But right now, 6.25 coins come out every 10 minutes, and the miners work, they compete to get those coins, and basically, the miners, um, depending upon their cost of electricity, you know, can mine a coin for between, say, I've seen as low as three or four thousand dollars a coin. I've seen as high as fifteen or sixteen. Obviously, if you're, or, or even twenty, you know, obviously, if you're paying twenty and, and the coin's at twenty-three, you're not making much of a margin. So you want to have a low electricity cost. So that's one way of, of looking at it. I mean, just as gold costs thirteen hundred to pull out of the ground, you sell it for eighteen hundred, you make five hundred a profit. Okay, fine. The other way of looking at it is as a where is it in its, in its price range 
is you compare it to the 200-day moving average, and this is something called the, the Meyer multiple, the Tip Meyer multiple, and it has a 200-day moving average like any other financial asset. And there are times when it trades at multiples of that, and there are times when it trades at a discount to that. And um, you generally speaking, you want to try and buy it when it's at the 200-day or below the 200-day, and you want to try and sell it when it's above the 200-day. And um, so you can play it that way as well. Um, you know, what I've typically done is I've just dollar-cost averaged it for years and years. I mean, um, and then when it gets really on the expensive, like when it was at 68, it was at a pretty high multiple of the 200-day moving average. And so I turned my DCA off for a little while. You know, and I waited, and it came back down, and I started buying it again. So, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's a very hard thing to value because it's its subjective based on how many people want it. It's its like a global pool of savings. I mean, how many, you know, what's gold really worth? I mean, it's its very subjective. You know, it's been well, money for But it's not as years. subjective as Bitcoin because it's used in industry every day. Yeah, that's that's that industrial use is really, really low, though, Chris. It's like 5 or 10%. Silver is a different story. Silver is a lot of industrial use, but gold is, is low. I mean, gold is gold is really women's jewelry and central and central banks. I mean, those are the two big demand sources for gold and um, well, and, and investors. I mean, just, um, you know, bullion buyers. And so, you know, and it's physical and that's great and you can touch it and that's great. And that's what prevents a lot of people from getting from grasping the notion of Bitcoin that you can't touch it. But um, if everybody if everybody agrees that it's, I mean, look at what the, look at the principles of it. The principles are, can it be printed willy nilly like the dollar? And the answer is no, you know, it has a very clear, you know, issuance path and, you know, can it be stolen? No, unless you get somebody's private keys, of course, you know, your gold can be stolen too by a man with guns coming to your, your safe. And, you know, the answer is no. And, and can it be, you know, if you've got an address that's got Bitcoin on it, and is is that subject to change? Has there ever been a hack that's taken those Bitcoin away? And the answer is no, there has not. So, with those things as a background, you know, to me, it's digital gold, and um, and we're moving towards a digital world, and you know, the the the, the ease of use of moving it around, I think, will make it ultimately surpass gold in terms of its utility. And, and you have to just look at the properties that it holds. You know, it's, it's issuance is about, it's less than 2% a year is getting issued now. And it, it represents true digital scarcity. That's the, that's the innovation. It, it, and it is an innovation. It's a technical innovation that took Adam Back and Hal Finney and a bunch of other guys years and years to put all the pieces together so that they could reliably say this thing cannot be printed into you know the double spend problem got eliminated and that's a you know I, I know it doesn't feel like it to a lot of people right now but i think in a bunch of years people are going to you know what that was a big deal the fact that they solved that technical problem sure was actually a big deal and you know it, it, and i get right? i get the analogs between the internet the invention of the internet i do get it right. I, I understand that and i understand that money now is basically digital anyways i mean no, not right. a lot of people are handling cash anymore anyway so i i get that argument too um, I just want to ask you real quick about something kind of off the path, which is yeah. you, you, you mentioned that you thought Bitcoin was created by a consortium of people and, you know, Hal Finney and others, Hal Finney is, has passed away, right? Right. I think, right. yeah. Okay. So I've done a little bit of reading on this, but not a lot. 
Um, but I did see that the um, the one guy, Craig, uh, what's what's his name? Craig Wright. Craig yeah, Craig yeah. Wright, fake, who is pub- Satoshi, publicly yeah. proclaiming himself to be right Satoshi, and is I we, saw. We got to be careful. He might he might sue us if he listens to this podcast. But go well, ahead. I saw him on Kitco, and I saw him. Uh, I see him. Uh, I think on Twitter, and I'm just kind of wondering why. If you can dumb it down for somebody like me that doesn't know shit about this and other people. How did you come to the conclusion that it was a consortium of people and not this other guy who says that it was him? There's, you, you got to go look at the evidence in those cases, okay? And what you'll see is that his claim that he's Satoshi and that the form of Bitcoin he had is the real Bitcoin, it just doesn't stand up under any sort of logical test. And I'm, <sighs> I'm not the best guy to refute it, but there are plenty of people who refute it. So that, that's an easy one to bat away if you... If you Google, you know, is Craig Wright the real Satoshi, you'll find a ton of articles that will, I think, convincingly prove to anyone that with a speck of logic in their head that, that, that he's not, okay? As to your, your more important question is who did develop it. Right. So if, if you go back into the early days of this whole thing, they were all on these sub-threads and there were chat groups and there were books written about this and there have been private papers published and they were all actually communicating. They're, you know, they were called the, cyber, the cypherpunks. And there were guys who knew about hashing and there were guys who knew, you know, about um, well, just all kinds of things. I mean, and, and, and some of them are still alive and still very active. One of the most important, in my view, is a guy named Adam Back, who I've met, met who's very humble, but he's a, and he's a technologist. And I'm absolutely convinced he played a role in the whole thing. And Hal Finney was involved in a couple of the very first transactions on Bitcoin. That's widely known. And then there were several other people, the names I'm forgetting right now, who were also involved. And as you can imagine, in the early days, there were, there were literally less than a dozen people that had the code, were running the code, were, you know, trading Satoshis back and forth. You know, they had no value at the time. This was long before they were used to buy the first pizza, right? And, um, and those people are all kind of, you know, uh, recorded in these chat groups and a lot of these emails chains have kind of gone out showing who those people were and you know then eventually satoshi just kind of removed himself the guy who claimed to be satoshi just kind of removed himself from the chat group and didn't post anymore and so my sense is it it was a big enough problem and a complicated enough problem it wasn't necessarily one person who solved it but this group of people kind of put it together and solved it and they all played a role in it and then they all just kind of walked away from it and said, let's call it Satoshi's invention. That, that's just my, so that's, that's from having read the books, the articles, and there's just a lot out there. You could, if you Google, you know, who is Satoshi Nakamoto, it's a big rabbit hole. I mean, you can go down there, you'll read all kinds of stuff. But you'll see that five or six names keep recurring over and over and over again. I'm, I'm, I wish I could remember. Jameson Lopp was another one of them. Um, there were just a lot of guys who were contributing to the project, working on the problem. And so eventually it launched and people started mining it and they were getting a mining reward and, you know, the rest is history, right? Um, and, you know, core developers started working on it. I mean, to me, the more inter- one of the most interesting things is the core developers. I mean, I, I sat in 2013 at, at MIT with a guy who was a super heavy computer scientist and he was a core developer. And I said to him, I said, you know, how's this thing running? I mean, how, how do we know? I mean, how much confidence do you have in this? I mean, I'm putting real money into this thing. I could lose my money if this, you know, computer blow up. What, what if this thing blows up? And he said, well, there are a bunch of copies of it. 
And I said, do you ever get worried? And he said, yeah, sometimes I go home at night and I've made some changes and submitted them and we, we adopted them. And I think to myself, holy shit, what if I croak the whole network? I mean, you have to remember in the early days, it really was kind of a grassroots project. It was very much an experiment. Right. And um, and there were, you know, I've, I've also run, and this is a great story too, Craig. I've run, I mean, uh, I've run it, Chris. I've run into guys, um, you know, young guys in their 20s. And, and, and this broke my heart. So one guy said, yeah, you know, I had 30,000 coins, right? I mean, think about what 30,000 coins is worth today, right? And I said, I said, Jesus, did you keep any of them? And he said, well, no. You know, we, we all thought it was an experiment. We all thought it was risky as hell. We didn't know if it was going to work. And frankly, when it got to be a dollar, I needed a car. So, you know, I sold all my coins. I got 30,000 bucks and I bought a car. Well, you know, do the math, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like, dude, you know, why didn't you just keep a thousand? You know what I mean? Because <laughs> and and it's because they didn't know. And 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 again, the guy, the guy, the MIT guy, I was talking to at twenty, he didn't know. I was like, is this thing going to work? Is this thing going to become money? He says, I don't know. He said, I think it's a great system. You know, it's worked this far. You know, we keep kind of trying to refine it and you know, doing submit changes to to make to improve the code as we go along. You know, there have been some bugs, and we've, we've we worked them out. And so far, it's held together, and, and we think it's going to continue to hold together, but we don't know. And, you know, I think there's always a certain element of that. And so would I ever advise anybody to go take all their money and put them in Bitcoin? Of course not. But, you know, again, you know, you know this, and you'll appreciate this, Chris, because of the way you think. You know, what's investing? Investing is, you know, you can put your money at risk, and you can lose all of it, right? you got to always assume you can lose all the money you invest in anything, right? But, and so you only do that. You don't do that because you think you're going to make 10%. You do that because you think you might make 2x or 3x or 4x or 5x, right? And, you know, if you have decent odds on the, on the split between lose all and make something, you know, that's going to come out to be a decent return. And so that's how I see this. It's an incredibly asymmetric bet. And so I always say, you know, the, the only wrong allocation here is zero. I mean, you know, anyone can, not anyone, many people can afford to buy one coin for $20,000, $23,000. If it, if, if it went to zero, you know, they wouldn't, their lifestyle wouldn't necessarily be changed, or in many cases, their lifestyle wouldn't be changed. And yet, you know, I, I think these $20,000 coins today could be worth 10x that or 100x that. And, you know, even if it's only 10x, that's 200 grand. That, that's meaningful. Of course, unless gasoline's 100 bucks a gallon. Um, or, you know, and if, it's, and if it's 100x that, that, that $20,000 coin is worth $2 million, which I think is possible in a 10 year window, you know, then why don't you own one coin? Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's 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 kind of how I see it. I mean, nobody knows the future, right? Yeah, you see it as but, a call option, which I think is exactly, a good way to see it. Exactly. It's, it's an asymmetric call option on the fact that the government is out of control and they're going to print a lot of money, right? And we, I mean, I think most of us can agree that that's highly likely. And so, you know, how do you defend against that? You own real estate, you own other stocks that are that'll do well in inflation, or you own gold, you know, or silver. But here's another version of that, perhaps a little bit riskier, you know, but, but in turn, actually with a lot more upside and possibly because you got two adoption curves, you got the, everyone's going to sound money adoption curve, which I think is going to happen as the government's continue to print. You've also got the, you know, we're at the tipping point of only 10% of the world owns this thing. And, you know, I think in 15 or 20 years, 90% of the world might own this thing. And if that's true, you know, you're going to see a lot of adoption growth and therefore the price will have to be much higher. So, do you think governments you know, could ban it if they wanted to? Oh yeah, well China did, although people use it under the under the radar. Yeah, I mean I think they could and I think that would hurt it a lot. Having said that, I don't think it would kill it because, you know, think about 
I mean, in the 30s when they grabbed gold, I think what I've read is about a third of the people didn't comply. I think in today's world, if the government's banned, if, say the U.S. government banned Bitcoin today, how many, I mean, knowing what you know about the American population, how many of you think would actually really comply with that? Do you know what I mean? I mean, look, it might make some people say, I'm never going there, I'm not going to adopt it. It might slow it down a lot. But those of us who are in it, would we comply? I mean, I'm not going to say what I would do, but I bet you that most of America wouldn't, you know. So it's, um, you know, I think I think more likely what they might do is that I think there are two things they're likely to possibly do. I think one, they might say you've got to report your addresses. And, of course, there'll be a question of whether or not people will do that and comply with that. I think the second thing they could do is they could push the taxes up a lot on it. I mean, right. my sense is when we right. get further in, when we get further into this fiat is melting phase, which is where we're going, in my opinion. That's, that's what they're going to do. The, they'll nationalize yeah, the, the well, miners and they'll raise the taxes, ex- right? Exactly, exactly. They're going to they're going they're going to develop a narrative that says we had a great system going here, and these gold and silver and Bitcoin people are just, are trying to destroy it, and therefore the tax on that stuff is enormous, right? I mean, my sense is that's where they're going to go. Now, consider though that you only pay taxes when you sell something. And consider, though, that they don't necessarily know that you have it. I mean, if you bought gold and silver coins, you know, and particularly if it's been over a long period of time, they don't know that you have them. You're not those people selling you those coins aren't required to report that you have them. Okay. And in turn, the same with the Bitcoin. Now they can trace it, but, you know, they're they're scrubbing devices and other things. And, you know, you can move it through a bunch of different addresses. You know, potentially they can figure out that, that you have it, but they don't know what coins are in what address and who controls what address. And so there's a certain amount of a defense mechanism here wherein, you know, if the government goes down that road, which, you know, frankly, I mean, I consider to be, you know, both un-American and and theft. I mean, if they decide they want to tax something you own at 90 percent, I mean, they might as well be just saying, give it to me. Right. And so if that happens, um, we'll see how people will respond. But my sense is it won't be there won't be a lot of compliance if that happens. But I, I think it's. I, I'm with you, and I think it's highly likely that it happens as the dollar continues to found, uh, it's flounder. The same, it's the same wonderful thought process, like you said, when the housing market was collapsing, banning short selling, right? Exactly. It's just and like, that's all right, I mean, let's just go after something that's not the problem. It's, it's yeah, one-dimensional. I mean, I was up, I was up, it's emptying yeah. the strategic petroleum reserve to try to bring down the cost of oil. It's just the exactly. worst possible solution, and that's the one that the government gravitates to first. And that's absolutely it's just and how I, it works. And that's why people don't want the government spending their tax money. Well, that's right. And, it, it, you know, just as a reminder that I was having a up 40 percent year in 20, uh, 2008. And uh, when they when they banned that short selling, I gave it all back. You know, so I'm look, I'm very aware of what the other side can do here. The, the 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 defense mechanism here is that you've got an asset that they can't grab, you know, unless right. they have that private key, they can't grab it. Um, so. You know, and, and it's the same is true with gold. I mean, you know, I suppose they can come to you know a house with guns, but if you've got gold well hidden, they can't grab it. Let's so. talk about let's talk about the Chinese spy balloon this week. <laughs> I don't uh, know anything about that. People in Montana. Oh, you didn't read about this? No, not yet. I I, I, I just heard you mention it earlier. Tell me what's going on there. Well, uh, apparently, a giant balloon with a. Uh, I think what they called a technology center attached to it. It looked like a satellite attached to a balloon. They found the fucking thing floating over an ICBM site in Montana. Uh, It was Chinese in origin. It flew through western Alaska, down through northwest Canada, over Montana, 
and then uh, also was reported to be like in the middle of the United States by midday on Friday. And uh, mm. so there's been they, they call it a Chinese high altitude surveillance balloon. Um, they wow. haven't shot it down because they're afraid of the consequences of shooting it down. And so they're just going to let China came out on Friday morning and said, oh, it's just a civilian nothing that got away from us. You know, <laughs> don't don't pay it any mind. And uh, and we're just fucking letting the thing fly over the country. Like we don't we don't know wow. what it could be. It could be a fucking neutron bomb for all we know, you know. But they're saying, all right, well, we don't want to shut it down. And so I guess I want to dovetail into a discussion about geopolitical risk. I happen to think that on top of assets being overvalued and interest rates getting ready to cripple the economy, that the other giant risk heading into this year is geopolitical risk, not just the BRICS nation's going to challenge the U.S. dollar. That's one thing, but also uh, the threat of uh, what I think is a Cold War that's already underway between the U.S. and China. Uh, in the U.S. and Russia. And so I wanted to just get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, and this is the Thucydides trap, you know, as, as outlined by Graham. I mean, that, that, you know, I mean, look, we, you know, and, and Dalio has laid it out in his book, which I'm in the process of reading right now. I mean, look, we are, we are the superpower and China is the rising superpower. And, you know, sadly, that kind of transition doesn't often occur without there being some kind of a war, you know, whether it be a full all out shooting war or not, it's unclear. I mean, there, there are other forms of war and it, it strikes me that we're already in one. I mean, you know, when, when, um, when Biden said, you know, if you work in the Chinese semiconductor industry, you know, um, if you stay, you're going to lose your citizenship, right? If you're an American. So, I mean, like we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of, and obviously there's a skirmish, you know, in the Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. We're seeing a lot of, um, proxy warfare going on between the u.s and these other challenging uh superpowers um you know most particularly china but russia as well and yeah i mean it just it adds to the level of risk in in all investments i mean you know i own some of the uh not not my fund but personally i own some of the russia russian stock etf because things were just so damn cheap well they march into the ukraine you know that got zeroed out of my fidelity account i mean I, I think it's still there but i don't know if i'll ever see a dime from it you know um i mean these are the kinds of things that happen when when big powers clash and you know the u.s has been a superpower for a bunch of years and um we've you know i think in my view in some ways abused the privilege certainly um monetarily we've abused the privilege and as a result of that uh, the other other sides are pushing back, and who can blame them? And uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm deeply concerned about you know the potential outcome. I hope we can make it through without you know a full fledged shooting war, and that we can kind of you know all sides can negotiate because you know killing millions of people isn't necessarily the way to solve the problem. But um, you know it, it certainly has happened in the past, right? And uh, you know we'd be crazy if we didn't recognize that it's it's within the realm of possibility. Um, you know, things, things are not going in the right direction. There's no doubt about that. No, you're right. And just to kind of jump onto something else off of that, heading into 2024, uh, you know, by the end of the year this year, the, the primaries will be in uh, full swing for 2024, or at least we'll have an idea of who our, who our field of uh, candidates are going to be for the upcoming election year. 
And I know it's a little early to talk about this, but who do you think? Uh, first off, do you think the Democrats are going to run Biden again? Uh, it looks like, you know, with this classified document scandal, maybe they may want him on the way out. And uh, secondly, uh, who do you think will be in the field for uh, the Republican Party? And, and what do you think will happen? Yeah, so I'm I'm really probably the worst person to ask on this because I'm so averse to politics. I hate it so much. I really I just don't um, I, I don't have. I'm, you know, as you say, like like the balloon thing, for example, <laughs> I, I really, really focus in on monetary stuff and on my company's gold and silver and everything else. And and so that's that's the area I specialize in, the area I look at. I try and avoid these other areas, not because they're not they don't have impact, but just because um, I don't know. They're just they're they're annoying and, and hard to predict. Um, I don't, I really don't, the answer, Chris, is I really don't know. I mean, I did see Nikki Haley has talked about throwing her hat in the ring, and I'm pretty sure she's a warmonger, and that's not a good thing from what I can tell. Um, you know, I, I would hope that what we get are people who are, you know, intelligent and would like to think about peaceful solutions to the differences amongst all these countries in the world. I mean, I don't, I don't think we need to have another war. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, if, if we had leadership that was enlightened, um, there, there are, you know, there's so many good things going on in the world. There's so much good technology, so much good communication, a lot of good people that um, it doesn't need to go down a, down a dark path. Um, but, you know, whether we'll be fortunate enough to have that happen or not, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do. I am concerned about it, as you are concerned about it, as I think we should be concerned about it. Um, but to, to predict who's going who's gonna to be running the show, who knows? It's, it's, it's a complete jump ball from what I can see. Um, I want to talk about you getting some shit on the internet a week ago or two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, that guy's you know, a bad guy. Sound the alarm. Somebody disagrees with you on the internet, just so you know. Um, but this yeah. happens to me all the time, too. And, I, you know, I just don't care anymore. Look, I, I have people that, you know, subscribe to my blog that listen to what I have to say. And the people that don't want it, they don't have to read it. Who cares? You know, right. nobody's putting fucking headphones on your head and forcing you to listen to the two of us. It's like either you want the perspective or you don't. And I, I guess the beef that I have comes with the the question of whether or not we come by it honestly. And that. That always seems to be the point of contention. This blog post that you posted back on January 24th calls you calls you a two-faced internet snake oil salesman and shyster. Wow, okay. Uh, pushing an unpermittable pipe dream. It sounds very similar to what somebody wrote about me like a month ago, you know, basically calling me a, f a financial fear monger. And I, I, we talked about it a little bit last time, I think, but what do you I mean, what do you say to that? What do you do when when that's somebody's? I mean, you don't do anything. Who gives a fuck? But yeah, like, but, but what do you say to that? What do you say to when people call you, you know, a fear monger? People tell me I'm trying to scare people into into subscriptions. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look. Uh, um, all I always said is, you know, I just I try to call them as I see them, right. and I I think there are some people who don't like hearing alternative points of view and there's some people who you know look there's some people who disagree with you on very legitimate grounds and say i think you're wrong and and that's their right and i respect that um you know to to call me a snake oil salesman and a shyster i mean i i don't really see that as being very accurate and i don't think that guy who said that is has a whole lot of credibility anyway i, I posted that because i just almost it's, it was almost humorous like you know can you believe some of the crap that people put out there and I, i'm sure you encounter the same kind of thing i mean 
I think people form their own judgments as to who they can trust and, and can't trust. And I think that, um, you know, whenever you take a point of view, um, there will be others on the other side of the table who will take the opposite point of view. Right. And, uh, but the, di- the difference so, seems like right? the difference seems like we can say, okay, we understand, you know, that there's people on the other side of the uh, other side of the coin, and that's what makes a market. And I get it. Like right. I, I can totally understand how somebody buys into the Keynesian system, who buys into the right. buy the dip ethos, that buys into the narrative that they're told that buys into the macroeconomic data. It makes sense to me. I get it. I, you know, and I would never blame anybody or berate anybody for that or whatever. But the difference is those people don't, don't always seem to think that, you know, we can also come by our views honestly. So is right. it, is it, we're not seeing their side enough or they're not seeing our side enough? <laughs> yeah. Um, Who's the asshole, I mean, Larry? I, Who's the asshole is the real yeah. question. <laughs> well, I, I think the, I think the answer really I think the answer really is they are because as, as <laughs> at least in, in, well no and I, but I'll tell you why it's, that's it's a what I thought it was too. Damn it! But but it's a pretty simple test, Chris. Really, it's it's you know and and how do you know because they go right to the ad hominem attack, right? Right. right. I mean, they're not sitting there attacking you on the merits. I mean, they're not sitting there saying, hey, you know, Larry thinks that we're going to have hyperinflation. That's ridiculous. We haven't had that in a hundred years, and you know, this is the biggest. I mean. Okay, fine. Argue why I'm wrong. We're not going to have hyperinflation. Okay, I get it. Fine, that's a point of view. I understand it. No, it's it's you know you're a sh- you know because you think we're going to go to hyperinflation, you're a snake oil salesman and a shyster. Right. Really? Okay. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I actually think that if you kind of look at the pattern, if you do pattern recognition, you look at how the government is now spending so much money and you know uh, printing so much money and, and and you know just look at the curve of M2 or anything else. Um, you know, I, look, is, are, are we going to, are we certainly going to have hyperinflation? Oh no, not certainly at all. I mean, I, it's probably a 5% shot, you know, today, but I think over some longer period of time, this is how it started in other countries. Right. And we are, we are going down a path that in the past in other places has led to hyperinflation. And nobody so, ever fucking, the market never reacts and nobody ever claims victory on the warning signs ahead of time. That's something I wrote on Friday in my blog yes. post. Yes which is no one ever reacts or says there's a problem on the first tick up of housing delinquencies on the second tick up of housing delinquencies. Like we're seeing now the first tick up of credit card delinquencies, the second tick up of credit card delinquencies, the first bit of inflation, the first, the first glance of hyperinflation. No, the market never reacts and nobody ever, you know, claims victory when that happens. It's only after it's too late. And then all of a sudden you go to bed the Larry Lapard, the snake oil shyster, the biggest asshole in history, and you wake up in the morning, the fucking guy that had it figured out before everybody else, and holy shit. Yeah, right, and and it's like, who could have seen Well, and then the, then the excuse is, well, who could have seen it coming? I mean, I love recently, I've seen some people saying, you know, all yeah, all you Bitcoiners, you know, none of you guys saw the Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried thing. That's complete and total horseshit. I mean, there were people screaming from the rooftops, including me and, you know, um, uh, Corey Clipston at, at Swan and, and a number of, I mean, we knew Sam Bankman-Fried was as phony as a $3 bill, you know, two years ago. And we were saying so, but nobody was listening. You know, I mean, I mean, remember the guy, remember Markowitz who had, had the total, or, or, was it, or it was Markopoulos, I think, the guy who had the total uh, jump on, um, oh, who's the, who's the big Ponzi guy that went to Madoff, right? And, uh, you know, but he was, he was calling the SEC saying this is absolutely impossible. Nobody has ever put up results like this with no right. down months. This, this has got to be a fraud, right? And, and everyone ignored him. And then, of course, it was a fraud. 
I mean, it's look, it, it, it's the story is as old as the hills. I mean, it, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it was it was Cassandra, right? I mean, it, the Greek legend. I mean, she she had the she had the ability to tell exactly what was going to happen, but nobody would listen to her. And, you know, so this is this is not a new problem, Chris. I mean, <laughs> this has been going on for a couple thousand years. And I'm not saying we've got the ability to know what's going to happen. But, you know, if, if you were if you're somewhat outside of the system, I mean, I think one of the reasons why a lot of people get all these things wrong is that their incentives are wrong. And it's it's um, it's Sinclair, Upton Sinclair's thing where, you know, uh, a man has a hard time understanding something if his salary, you know, is based upon him not right. understanding it. Right. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of people who've done extremely well in the existing system, and they don't really have much incentive to investigate how and why it's broken. And 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 they also, many of them, are smart enough to know that fixing it would not be good for their pocketbook. Right. And you know, th- th- there's your Charlie Munger, right? I mean, Charlie Munger is a cantillionaire of the first order. I mean, he and his partner just play the U.S. government system like a fiddle. Yeah, and they got ri- and they got rich and they got rich Perfectly. off of it. Perfectly. And they got rich off of it. You know, insider deals. I mean, the Solomon deal when they knew the 2008 bailout was coming. Blah 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 blah. All the way down. You know, I mean, the, hey man, there I mean, is stop, nothing stop, better stopping than riding... the, stopping the pipeline stopping the pipeline right before they bought Burlington Northern, so that the railways would be more valuable. Right after the bubble, the railways would be more valuable. I mean, look, these guys know how to play the game, and. You know, the game is you, you work the system. There's nothing and, better than riding the Keynesian wave and the whole time talking about this nationalist narrative of how, oh, it's just because the U.S. is the, you know, it's the best investment in the world. It's the only place to invest. And all you're doing is riding the coattails of monetary policy that benefits you greatly and widens the inequality gap further and disproportionately harms uh you know middle and lower class people and that's it there's nothing to it that's exactly that's exactly right no big secret there no that's exactly right anyways all right larry well thanks so much man i appreciate you uh spending an hour of your time with me today it's been a while since we spoke hopefully we get to uh catch up again some point relatively soon make sure you go outside and check to make sure that chinese spy balloon isn't over your house all right (laughs) and fuck fuck what the u.s government says larry if you see the fucking thing out there pull the you know what to do you know what to do i know what to i know what to do (laughs) thanks chris i i I really always enjoy i always enjoy talking to you we should do it more often okay all right brother speak to you soon that was the one the only larry lapard just hung up on i'm sorry larry you'll have to forgive me there i assume what he was just going to say there at the end was thank you you're a genius really a super genius and thank you again and you're wonderful and good looking and have a full head of hair goodbye larry lapard i guess that guess that's where i cut him off at the end of the uh at the end of the call there but anyways thanks so much for listening i have a couple of great podcasts lined up for this month so i'm kind of stoked i know we didn't do too much last month but i was very busy had a lot of shit going on uh you know such is life um all right make sure you uh leave your house and salute the chinese surveillance balloon if you see it and uh if you don't then uh you know just uh I say go watch the Pro Bowl, but nobody gives a fuck. Super Bowl, Eagles, one week, motherfuckers. I'm out of here. Peace.